1: Merry Christmas, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter through the Bible with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today, as we journey through our special Christmas series, Pastor Will continues in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 1-3, through with part 1B of a message entitled, The Wonder of the Incarnation.
2: To you alone. We find the Christmas story in an unlikely place, not a gospel, not a personal account of someone who experienced the birth of Christ, but in a doctrinal letter. <laughs> Turn to Hebrews 10 with me. Now, the book of Hebrews chapter 10 tells the Christmas story in a little bit different way than you and I are used to hearing you know, we are used to hearing it from the shepherd's perspective, from Mary's perspective, from Joseph's perspective, from the wise men's perspective, from the shepherd's perspective, even in a sense maybe from the angel's perspective. But here we see it from Jesus' perspective. In verses 1 and 2, it extra- explains the problem. It's just for the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image, the very substance. We know the difference between a shadow and it's the actual thing. You know, it's night and day. For the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very substance of the things, that law can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually, if they could never make the comers thereunto perfect. Hold that word in mind. It's going to become important later. Perfect. Those sacrifices could never make those who brought them perfect. For if they could, verse 2, then would they not have ceased to be offered? I mean, if it finished the job, then they could have stopped bringing them, right? But of course they didn't. Because that the worshipers once purged should have no more conscience of sins. That's why they, would have had to, they could have stopped. They would have no more conscience of sins. But instead through the law, these sacrifices, in those sacrifices, there is a reminder, a remembrance again, made of sins every year. It might have been glorious in the day of atonement to see that goat wander off into the wilderness and to say, God's forgiven us, praise the Lord. But you'd have to do it again next year and still hope that that goat would go wander and offer into the wilderness. And every year it'd be the same. Every time you messed up and you had to come bring an offering to the tabernacle or to the temple, it was a reminder that it wasn't done. And the reason why is verse 4, for it's not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Wherefore, which is why, which is why when he comes into the world, when Jesus came into the world, this is what he said, and it's a quote from the Psalms, sacrifice and offering you would not, you did not want, you didn't desire, but a body thou hast prepared me. Jesus, as he is about to come into the world to be born as a babe, he turned to the Father and he said, you weren't looking for all these sacrifices. That's not what you want. You didn't want these religious rituals. They served a purpose, but that's not what we were looking for. What you're looking for was this, me taking on this body that you've prepared for me. And then said, I, I'm good with that. Lo, I come in the volume of the book it's written about me, this has been prophesied, it's been predicted, you've been pointing forward to it. Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it's written of me, I come to do thy will, O God. I will be the perfect man. I will die for their sins. I will be the perfect sacrifice. Jesus, what he had in mind here was his love for us. Now, verse 8 explains, above or before when he had said, sacrifice and offering and burnt offering and offerings for sin, you don't want that, neither at pleasure therein which are offered by the law. He's explaining, those were the things that you're thinking about going back to. Well, then said he, after the reference to that, that God doesn't want that, lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He explains, Jesus is making clear that he's going to take away the first, the the law, that he may establish the second, I'm sorry, not the law, the old covenant, and that he might establish the second, the new covenant. By the which will, that will of Jesus, the will of God, that we would be rescued by God becoming a man. By that will, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest, he stands daily ministering and offering uh, oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever... He sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth, from that moment after he finished the work of the cross, from that moment, expecting, looking forward to the time when his enemies would be made his footstool. Why? Because for one offering, by one offering, he has perfected forever them that are sanctified. Whereabout whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us, for after that he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Jesus' heart was to come that he might do these things for us. Three things that are listed here. If you've repented of your sins and trusted the Son of God for your salvation, verses 14 through 17 are a description of who you are because of His incarnation, because of His love for you. And what has His love done for us? Three things, as I said. Verse 14 is the first one. For by one offering He has perfected forever them that are sanctified. What does it mean to be perfected forever? Well, first off, it explains... This is a blessing for those who are sanctified. The ones, literally means the ones presently being made holy. That's you and me. When we placed our trust in Christ, immediately we were justified. We were totally cleared of guilt and we were made righteous. And then began the process of being made more like the Lord. Sanctification. That's us. So those who are perfected forevermore are us. The people who are being sanctified, being made more like Christ every day. And what is this? Reason that we're perfected forevermore? Why is he bringing it up? For by one offering, we'll be referenced back to verses 12 and 13. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross finished everything that needed to be done to sanctify us. And with that job done, Jesus is now waiting for the next step, right? Which is the promise of the Father that he's going to rule on the earth, that his enemies will be made his footstool. Now, can I tell you something? A super important concept. <laughs> Jesus would not be sitting on the right hand of the Father waiting for the next thing if the previous thing was unfinished, which means the previous thing is finished, that the sacrifice he gave, that one sacrifice for sins forever, that perfected us forever. So the question is, what does it mean that we're perfected forever? Well, five other verses in the Hebrews mention this perfection and give us a better understanding of what it means. So turn to Hebrews 7, verse 11 with me. I'm going to start here. You didn't know Hebrews was a Christmas book, did you? Hebrews 7, 11. It tells us, If therefore perfection, there's that word, were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, What further need that was there for another priest that should arise after the order of Melchizedek, referring to Jesus, and not be called after the order of Aaron? Jesus was not a Levite. He was of the tribe of Judah. So the idea is, if the Old Testament sacrificial system could bring perfection, then why did Jesus have to come? That's what he's asking them. Well, verse 19, for the law made nothing, here it is again, perfect, but... The bringing in of a better hope did, referencing what Jesus did for us, but here's what explains what it did. By the which we draw near unto God. Now, Hebrews 7, 11, 19, we put them together. It explains that being perfected allows us to draw near to God. That was an impossibility under the Old Testament sacrificial system. The tabernacle was barred to everyone except the priests, and even they could not go into the Holy of Holies but once a year. And that was only the high priest. The old covenant shouted, stay back, stay away. Remember when God first, his presence came on Mount Sinai? What were the first, the first words he gave to Moses? Put police tape around this mountain. I'm Paraphrase. Put police tape around this mountain so that no person comes on it and touches it, no animal touches it, lest I break forth and wipe you all out. It's not that God didn't want anyone to come close. It's that sin had not been completely dealt with. And so the message of the tabernacle, of the temple, is stay at a distance. Stay at a distance. You cannot come near. So this being perfected allows us to draw near to God. We don't have to stay away. Why? Hebrews 9, 9. Hebrews 9, verse 9. It explains here what the priest did going through what they did in the tabernacle and in the temple. And it tells us in verse 9 that they were um, a symbol, in the sense they pointed forward just to a substance. They were a shadow that was pointing forward to a something real that was coming. Verse 9 of Hebrews 9, which was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices, that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. So we already know that this perfection allows us to draw near. Now Hebrews 9.9 9 tells us it has to do with a conscience thing. Now what is conscience? A con with science knowledge. The, the With knowledge. This word conscience in the Greek, it first arose when Greek philosophers were describing the part of us that uncomfortably reminds us of our offenses and evokes the torments of hell until such behavior is amended. Anyone ever experienced that? We think of conscience and we normally think of Jimmy Cricket, right? Is it Jimmy Cricket? Jimmy Cricket, I think. If I get that wrong, tough. But that's not how conscience was originally conceived. The word conscience came about because of what you guys, I, was, I said, have you ever experienced that? And you're like, yeah. It's the part of you that says, don't do that. And then when you do do it, it says, you're bad. And says, you need to fix this. And it keeps poking you until you do. That's what conscience originally was explained as. In fact, in the Greek Old Testament, the word is only used three times. At all times, it speaks of the part of our hearts that serves as prosecutor and judge. You are guilty, and you need to fix it. Now, later on, both Jews and Greeks came to think of it the way that we do today, like an advisor. Those who listened to the advice of their conscience had a clean conscience, right? Paul talks about having a clean conscience before God and men. That, that he had listened to that advisor. But here's the kicker. What happens when you don't listen? When you don't listen, the tormenting part of the conscience kicks in until you make up for it somehow, right? It kicks in and it keeps kicking until you make up for it somehow, until you fix it. But is there any way to make up for our sin? is there? Is there? No. And the New Testament calls our attempts to make up for our sin, dead works. Dead works. What are dead works? If you have a cat, you probably have seen dead works. When the cat brings the mole or the mouse or the bird, you know, and it's all excited and proud, it's playing with it, it brings it to you. And you're thinking, huh? because it's a dead work. It's a, what are you bringing me this for? I did it. I didn't want you to do that. The Bible describes it a little bit more graphically, that all of our righteousnesses, all of our good deeds are like the politically correct term, filthy rags. The word means menstruous rags. Yeah. You would not be happy if someone presented that to you and said, look at what I did. You would be grossed out. You would never consider that to be a good work. It would be a work that is worthless in a sense. It doesn't do any good. It's a dead work. Jesus, his sacrifice rescued us from that kind of life where we're saying to God, 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 I, I did something to make up for what I did wrong. I know I, did wrong. I know I did wrong for the last 10 months, but these last two months, Christmas is coming close. I'm trying to get better, trying to make up for it, trying to fix it, God, trying to be a good person. Jesus' sacrifice rescues us from that kind of life so we can serve God every day, even though we've sinned and fallen short. Look at Hebrews 9.14. It says, you know, if Christ's blood obtained eternal redemption for us, verse 14, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge, cleanse, you know, wash away your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. This concept is echoed when we get to chapter 10 in verses 1 and 2. When it says, for the law having a shadow of good things to come, not the very substance, it could never with those sacrifices which they offered year to year make us perfect, allow us to come near to God, allow us to be able to just serve Him freely even though we fail. For if that were the case, then all those offerings would have stopped because the worshipers once purged would have no more conscience of sins. Being perfected forever, guys, means you and I never, ever have to relate to God on the basis of performance again. Amen? Is our goal to always do the right thing? Yes. And do we still fall short of that? Yes. <laughs> but I don't have to go on the work's treadmill to make up for it. Jesus already did that for me. My conscience is still my advisor, but I no longer must listen to its torturous condemnations. I'm free. If you're in Christ, you are free. Isn't that awesome? You're perfected forever. That's the first thing. The second thing is verse 16. This is the covenant that I, in chapter 10. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days. Says the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. The word laws is plural, so it's not referring to the law of Moses, but just God's eternal standards, His eternal laws that have always been and always will be. God's standards, His laws, His rules, His his rights and and His wrongs, they aren't simply a list of do's and don'ts. That's the dead works, the performance-based relationship we've been rescued from. In the same way, you and I don't, or do, or don't do certain things toward those we love because we love them. Christ's sacrifice made it possible for God to put into us the knowledge and the ability to please Him. For God, uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for God who commanded the light to shine, His light to shine out of the darkness has shined in our hearts. The glorious light of Jesus Christ, right? He has put His Spirit inside of us. God, who is light, is living inside of us. You know, Jesus, when, you know, they were saying, you know, don't go, you know, you know, you know Mary's holding on to him, you know, nobody wants him to leave. And he said, I have to go. If I go, then I can get out of this body and I can get into all of your bodies. I can send my spirit and put him inside of you. And I, who am light, I, who am God, can live through you. I can change you. I can do something Supernatural. God, who commanded the light to shine of the darkness, to shine in our hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of their power may be of God and not of us. Guys, because of grace, because of the cross, because of his love for us, because what he did for us, the incarnation, you and I don't have to sin anymore. We are empowered to obey the Lord. Isn't that awesome? You don't have to wake up every day and just go, I'm going to blow it. I'm a slave to sin. You're not. Romans 6, verses 6 to 14. I I'm out of time to read it Read it today. But go read it because it says that you know, sin shall not have dominion over you for you're not under the law, you're under grace. We have been empowered to obey. He's written his law in our hearts and put, him in, put it into our minds. That's the second thing that the incarnation did for us. That was uh, Romans 6, 6 through 14. And the third thing is in Hebrews ten, seventeen. And their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Our sins, everything that we've done that's contrary to God's will and God's standard, everything. Our iniquity deals with the heart a little bit more. It refers to that which is done in rebellion to God. Everything we've done in a heart of rebellion towards God. Every, every way we've fallen short of God's will, God's standard, whether we meant to do the right thing or not, whether the time, all the times that we rebelled against Him in our heart, it says He will remember no more. When the Lord thinks of you, He thinks of who you are in Christ. Who you are in Christ. You know, something else to think about when we think of God remembering. Every time we see and the Lord remembered so and so, it means that God began working actively in their life again. It's not like you know uh, the Lord's up in heaven and he's you know playing checkers with Gabriel, you know, and 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 you know and you know he, you know Noah's on the flood for months and months and months, and you know Gabriel's like, hey, you know, how's Noah doing? The Lord's like, oh no, oh, man, I rem- I just I forgot about Noah, and God remembered Noah, you know. As, as Genesis says. No, that's, that's not it at all. God never forgets. He's never out of control. When it says he remembered so and so, it means he began to work actively in their life again. The idea here is it's not just God passively sees you in Christ, it's that whenever he is working actively in your life, he is never doing it on the basis of who you used to be. He is doing it on the basis of who Christ has made you now. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> God discipline us when we sin? Of course. Because that's what a parent does if they love their child. But He never punishes us. He never pays us back for our failures. How many times a week does the enemy lie to you about that? This is happening because you didn't read your Bible today. This is happening because you failed in this area today. You didn't keep this commitment. You were not nice to that person. This is happening because of this, 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 and this. That's why He's called the accuser of the brethren. Surely the Lord disciplines us. But God God is not getting us back or getting us. Don't listen to those lies. Rest in this awesome promise that God will never treat you on that basis again. Amen? So you are forever perfected. You're empowered to obey, and God will never treat you according to your sins again if you have repented of your sins and put your trust in the Son of God. So. Anyway, when you see the baby in the manger and even the Lamb of God on the cross from now on, you think about that. Don't forget that he's the eternal king of heaven and earth. Don't forget that it was his unwavering stand against sin and his amazing love for us that brought him to our world and led him to the crucifixion. You know, whether Christmas is a big holiday that society glorifies and says is awesome, or whether it's ignored by the masses. Christians should all be in awe when we think about the incarnation, right? And so I ask you as we close, do you take the time to consider who it is that became a man when you think about Jesus becoming a man? That he didn't need you, he wasn't lonely, but that he wanted you. And He did such amazing things for you in that love for you. Now, when I share this awesome plan of God, that His Son, who created all things and will rule over all things, that He came to rescue us from our sin, people often will ask me, if that's true, then why are things such a mess right now? Why don't we see the results of this wonder today? Well, I think it's a great year to answer that really important question. (laughs) I think it's really important for you and me to know the answer to that question on this Christmas. And so my plan is to go through Hebrews chapter 2 with you next so we can answer that question. And then we can talk about the mindset that we should have not just for this Christmas, but the attitude and mindset that we should have as Christians for the rest of our lives. Oh, Jesus, we cannot conceive of your majesty. We try to, of course, because your word explains it. And so we try to fathom what it's like that you're God, what it's like that you are eternal, what it's like that you are the outshining of God's glory, that you, you are very nature, very substance, you are the eternal Lord. God the Son, Lord, it melts our hearts to think that you who needed nothing wanted us. Lord, we are very acquainted with our failures, our sin, our rebellion against you. We're very acquainted with our imperfections. And yet, Lord, to think that you said, you are my beloved, there is no spot in you, that you set your love upon us and you proved it through the incarnation. Lord Jesus, we say we love you back. We say thank you. And we worship you now. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app available on iTunes and Google Play.